Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Welcome listeners to another episode of Cycling in Alignment. Today I'm recording from my hotel room in Barcelona, Spain. And it's been a little while since I've had the chance to record for you. Sorry about that. Things have been quite busy. I just finished attending a training camp for Team EF Cycling. As a coach, of course, no. I'm not attending the training camp as a professional rider, you silly goose, because I'm not a pro. Maybe you forgot that. I'm pretty sure you know that because I'm almost 50, so me being a pro would be pretty ridiculous. I am a coach for Team EF Coaching, which means we coach Gen Pop, which is a nice way to say the general population, which is another way to say people who aren't professionals, which is another way to say we coach anyone who has a goal in cycling, whether that's to become a category two or to compete in your first Vondo or to learn how to do intervals or simply figure out how to ride your bike faster. So we had our first training camp in Bayuda, Spain, and it was a really successful camp in spite of some challenges. Uh, one of which was that I hit the ground. I crashed riding with my team EF coaching colleague, Zach Morris and Nathan Haas coming down a descent into Girona on the first day of riding there. That was a bummer. Hit some wet pavement and down I went. Nathan generously blamed it on the auto race that had happened on the road earlier that day. There were a whole bunch of historic cars that went zooming up the mountain and he claimed that there was diesel off of the road, but I think he was just being nice. I, the fact is I just ate it. And then we had the world's worst weather. It's been beautiful in Spain for like two months. And then the day we showed up, it started raining and became unseasonably cold. And we got snowed on at least once. So that happened. But we managed to have a really good camp anyway and learned all the things. And what I wanted to speak to you about today is specifically fueling for rides. And the reason I want to talk to you about that is because I had a great experience at camp where I got to watch Zach do his thing. And he really emphasized a lot of important points about fueling during our work there with our clients. And it reminded me how important fueling is for competitive cycling and also how polarizing the spectrum is, how polarized the choices we have to make are based on the types of riding we do. So I thought it would be really useful for me to hopefully give you guys some insight on that or some thoughts on that. So many of you have heard me kind of rip on bars and gels in the past on my podcasts and I'm not here to reverse that position but I'm here to refine some thoughts on that because we ought to understand the types of fuel that will best serve us during different types of cycling so the way I'm thinking about this currently is a simple spectrum everything is a spectrum it's never yes or no it's never good or bad it's not Darth or Luke it's where are we from one extreme end to the other? And in cycling, your fuel choice should be dictated by the following spectrum. How intense is the riding you want to do? The more intense the riding is, 
the more you need to fuel with pure sugar. And the longer the ride is, and the more intense it is, the more ultimately you will need pure sugar. That's just the way it works. Now, to bring the sub point on that, when your duration gets really, really long, your intensity will go down, right? It has to. There's a natural law there. So no one does a 12-hour bike race or a 24-hour bike race or a 7-day bike race like RAM and has a lot of intensity involved. It, the human body just doesn't work that way. So when we're talking about ultra-distance events like Badlands or something to that effect, some sort of event where you're riding your bike for 8 or more hours a day, maybe 20 hours a day in some cases, sometimes for multiple days in a row, <clears throat> the sugar rule doesn't really apply. In fact, the furnace rule applies, which is basically the engine is running so hot or rather the furnace is turned all the way up to such a degree that you can almost throw anything in and the body will use it for fuel. Because when you continually move like that, I'm talking 20 hours a day or 12 hours a day, you're burning so many calories, it almost doesn't matter uh, what you put in there. And of course, there's a rule where what you do in the short term won't necessarily impact your long-term health positively, even though it may get you across the finish line or enable you to make it to the next town without collapsing in a pile of hypoglycemic goo. But so you got to do what you got to do if you're going to do something extreme. And that means finish. And sometimes that means eating whatever you can find. I heard a great interview with Lachlan recently, and he was talking about all the ultra events he did, he did. And the interviewer asked him, you know, do you have any specific dietary constraints? You know, like, are you vegan or are you gluten-free? And Lachlan almost laughed, I think, because there's no possible way you could have those types of constraints and actually finish those types of events. Like when Lachlan's riding across France or Poland, he literally just has to eat whatever has calories. And a lot of times that's probably gas station food, to be honest. And so it's not like you can wash into a gas station in Poland and ask them for gluten-free cheese crackers. You know, you got what you got and that's it. So you literally have to be like a human kind of food compactor and just consume anything and convert it into energy. So in order to be an athlete like that, first and foremost, you have to have a very durable gut. So that aside, those special conditions aside, when we're talking about the relationships between intensity and volume, the more intense the event is, whether it's intervals you're doing or a race you're doing, like a time trial or a hill climb or a road race, or the longer the event is up to the point short of where duration starts to decrease intensity by natural law, which would probably be about five or six hours for most people. Could be less if you're not as fit. Could be like three hours if you're not as fit. Up to that point, you're going to need a lot of sugar. <clears throat> and specifically when you cross anaerobic threshold, not to be confused with aerobic threshold, you're going to need more sugar. This is the glycolytic energy system primarily when you cross anaerobic threshold. This means, and this, this is like, look this up in a physiology textbook. It burns sugar. That's what it uses. It uses glucose, which comes from glycogen, which is the stored form of glucose, or it comes from glucose in your blood. And there are lots of ways for us to put glucose in our blood, but by far the most effective is to consume sugar. What types of sugar? Well, specifically, 
we want to, what seems to be to work for most people is a combination of some slightly different forms of sugar. That is some sucrose and some fructose or some possibly dextrose or other forms of slightly longer sugars like galactose or maltodextrin. And this part gets a little scientific and dorky and I'm not going to go down this road too much. It, this part's also a little frustrating for me because what I've noticed is that every manufacturer who makes a drink is absolutely convinced that their drink is the best one and the only one that works. And again, this is the same problem as the When Harry Met Sally problem where the guy says to her, you know, everyone, like, I have good taste. And she says, honey, everyone thinks they have good taste. He says, but I do have good taste. And she says, well, not everyone has good taste, but everyone thinks they have good taste. So you do the math, right? The point being is that all manufacturers can't be right. Just like all aero wheel manufacturers can't actually make the fastest wheel. So probably the truth is borne out in bio-individuality, and that's how it's going to shake out anyway. Meaning, ultimately, you have to perform an N of 1 experiment and decide which drink works for you. Is it the glucose-fructose blah, blah, blah ratio, or is it the maltodextrin da, 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 ratio? You have to figure this out for yourself. The only rule is don't use only fructose. Almost everyone has trouble with this, in my experience. Uh, not that I've looked in everyone's guts or talked to that many humans, but I'll say it's common. Uh, and fructose teams to not work in large quantities in the gut during hard levels of exercise. And I've got personal experience with this as well. And there are products out there that are trying to use only fructose. So just be aware of that. Uh, probably not the best choice. Who knows? Maybe it'll work for you. And if you're dead set on using that type of sugar, then try it out. See what happens. But if you've got problems like bloating or gas or stomach pain during hard efforts, then that's a sign that it's not going to work for you. Of course, I prefer the cleanest choices you can make, meaning I want something with less dyes, less colorings, less additives, uh, less long ingredients list, um, stuff that you can pronounce and understand what it is pretty easily. If your drink has a lot of crap in there that fits outside of any of those parameters, then why would you drink it? Let's be smart about this. This is basic common sense. We don't need to put a bunch of chemicals in our body. This isn't rocket science. It's just sugar water, basically, with some electrolytes. So those are the rules as far as intensity goes. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, when you're eating less, uh, sorry, when you're riding at a less intense level, you can use other fuels, other fuel sources. What does that mean? Well, if you're doing a really long aerobic endurance ride or what some people might call a zone two ride, for example, you'll use some glycogen. But if you're pretty solid about staying in your prescribed training zones, then you don't need a ton of carbohydrates. That said, you can finish a six hour zone two ride having not a single minute above threshold and be actually somewhat glycogen depleted. Why? Because just as fueling is a spectrum, also the body uses energy systems in a spectrum. So even when you're riding at your zone two pace or aerobic endurance pace, whatever that is, we'll use the typical 175 watts, which is common, 175 to 200 watts is common for a lot of endurance athletes. If you're in that range, you're still going to be using, uh, contributing, you're still going to be making a small portion of your work 
using glycolytic energy. So you will deplete some carbohydrate stores. The point being is that even though you technically didn't ride above threshold, you can finish a ride like that, of course, somewhat or even completely glycogen depleted. You know, it's possible. It depends a lot on how fit you are, how what your fat max is, uh, what fuels you use during that ride, and what fuels you used before that ride, and how well-fueled your glycogen tank was going into that ride, right? So it's always about context. And this begins to address the problem of formulas, which I'll get into. So when we're on a longer ride, we can, and I would argue we ought to, in most cases, gravitate towards some fuels that are not gels and bars, or specifically gels and mixes. Those are the two most sugary things on earth. Make no mistake about it. They're just glorified, really expensive cake frosting. That's what gels are, by the way. Do the math on it. Cake frosting is a lot cheaper. So when we gravitate away from those, what do we get? Why do we care? Why not just use gels all the time? They're so freaking convenient. Well, for one, they're expensive, as I just pointed out. But also, they're a really poor source of micronutrients. And when you're eating quite a bit of those throughout the season especially if you're doing a lot of six-hour rides and you're just consuming gels and gels and gels. One, okay, let's let's break out the obvious. First of all, you've got a really acidic environment in your mouth from all that breathing, mouth breathing you're doing. Then you add a ton of sugar, you're going to annihilate your teeth. Turns out bike riding is really bad for your teeth, especially professional cycling. I also know this from experience. But also, you're not doing yourself any micronutrient favors by consuming all this packaged sugar, Right? So if we actually use some foods like, let's say, basmati rice with little bits of egg and prosciutto and sea salt, you're getting some micronutrients in there. You could even sneak in a tiny bit of spinach if you wanted to. Let's say you're going to make homemade Rice Krispie treats with hippie Rice Krispies and actual natural marshmallows, which are, you guessed it, sugar. But you're also going to add some almonds, goji berries, and cacao nibs. There's a recipe for you. There are lots of good sports bar recipes out there that contain micronutrients that are going to help offset all this empty calories, fuel, fuel, fuel that you're consuming when you're doing your hard efforts. You could also try an oatmeal bar or a granola bar homemade with chia seeds and flax seeds and almonds or cashews or whatever you want to put in there, hazelnuts. And again, cacao nibs or chocolate chips or sour cherries if you want something that's not sweet. The other big reason to do this is because 99% of what's out on the market is sugar-based and it tastes like sugar. And this can be, for a lot of people, really fatiguing to their taste buds and their mental state when they're consuming so much sugar all the time on the bike. Every ride is annihilated with sugar. It's like the Western diet only has a palate for two things, salt and sweet. And there are lots of other flavors we can consume and enjoy, just to let you know. So as an idea, you might seek other foods out for your longer, slower rides. I mean, it doesn't have to be elaborate. It doesn't have to be something you make at home by yourself. If you don't want to go get Alan Lim's scratch cookbook and make rice balls, you can just make a an almond butter and banana sandwich. Simple, effective on sourdough. There you go. The perfect savory treat with all the things you need that will function perfectly well for you on a longer, slower ride. Or you can use this to fuel before a recovery ride if you're so inclined. So the advantages are twofold at least. Well, threefold, I would argue. One is you get more savory flavor options or non-sweet options. 
We'll put it that way. Two is you get more micronutrients in your food and some actual fiber. Although that's a bit of a topic in endurance sports right now. Some people think that you don't want fiber around your hard race performances. I don't entirely agree with that. Although I'll say the morning of my ride, I definitely don't want fiber in my breakfast. Um, I do want it the night before, personally. That's been my experience. Then the next morning, everything happens right away and you're all set for your race. And when I say everything happens, what I mean is you poop really effectively before the race and then you're not having to go halfway through your event and pull a Tom Dumoulin which can be quite problematic during hunt bike races. Uh, that's my rhythm and that's what works for me, but it may not work for you. Individual results may vary. But the third reason that we want to gravitate towards other alternate fuel sources, especially not sugars or even those that are higher in fat, is because when you consume fatty foods before longer, slower training rides, you influence the fuel utilization that your body will um, commandeer, which is a weird way to say it. But basically, if you put fat in the system, your body's going to use more fat for fuel. And if you want to upregulate fat, fatty acid usage for fuel during longer rides, then you got to give it some fatty acids. If you're going to nuke carbohydrates, especially simple carbs, that entire ride, you're going to, we'll say, upregulate or spin up carb reliance and carbohydrate dependence. And that's not a bad thing. Um, it can be a good thing. But again, moving away from the Disney paradigm, it's a spectrum. So really what we want is an athlete who is capable of using both sugars as fuel for extremely high output efforts and using fats for lower intensity efforts in order to spare glycogen. That is, save your rocket fuel for when it counts. So we want you to be able to use the diesel fuel or the non-sugary foods like the whatever banana uh, almond butter sandwich which has a little more fat content or an avocado and almond butter sandwich even more fat content for example on your long rides in order for you to save the rocket fuel for when it counts for when you need the the race pace effort at the end of the ride or when you're in the peloton conserving energy you're burning fat and then you're using more carbohydrate when you're making the break or destroying the breakaway and going to win solo in the road race of death and destruction. So this fuel choice before your ride can impact how your body uses fuel and it can help your body learn to spare carbohydrates. However, this is where the whole keto thing comes in. Some people, of course, assume that more is better because it always is, right? Uh, sarcasm. And so if some carbohydrates are to be spared and that makes us fast, then it must be the case that only eating all fat, bacon, and avocados will make us even faster and more efficient and have no inflammation. And what has been brought to light from people who have done this type of work and studied it is that the enzymes that actually process sugar and produce very quick and powerful muscle contractions start to get downregulated when you don't give them sugar. So if you consume a ton of ketogenic foods, a lot of avocados and goat cheese or full fat cream or eggs and go out on your bike ride all the time and then you try to really go at rocket fuel pace, that is something that's going to cause separation in a peloton or win a bike race, a lot of times you just don't have the enzymes to actually do that and you just don't go that fast. That's the problem. So 
just like you have to train the gut in order to handle all these sugars and carbohydrates while you're going fast, you also have to train the enzymes in your muscles to handle the sugar and handle the rocket fuel when you put it in there. Otherwise, they just don't know what to do. And the enzymes become non-reactive. I mean, it's the same natural law as with everything. If you don't use it, you lose it. So if you don't train really fast, you're not going to go really fast. And if you don't stretch out your hips every once in a while, they're going to get really tight. Natural law. So we're looking for sugary sources for our intense rides. And the longer and more intense the rides are, that is a long, hard road race, like a 100-mile road race, or a long, hard training ride with a lot of rolling hills and Maybe it's a group ride with sprints and attacks and then finishes with a long climb kind of situation or a day where you're just going out and smash a bunch of intervals, a bunch of threshold. The best fuels that you can put in your body for that type of work is our sugars, period. And I think the quantity of sugar that is needed for that type of work can consistently be, we'll say, undervalued or underrated. And this is really something that's being talked about a lot in sports science and nutrition right now at this moment. Um, in particular, you know, when I was racing as a pro back in the day, when I went uphill both ways in the snow with no shoes, you know, 50, 60, 70 grams of carbs per hour was a lot. Now people are doing about twice that at the extreme level and 90 grams of carbs an hour is considered to be cutting edge and what the envelope is, what the goal is, we'll say. Now, 90 grams of carb an hour, if you were to put that into normal food form, imagine that's like eating three bagels every hour, full-size bagels every hour while you're riding your bike in a bike race. That's an insane amount of carbs. That's a lot of fuel to put it in context, right? That's a lot of fuel. Now, obviously, if you ate three bagels, you'd probably throw up all of your handlebars. That's because bagels have a lot of bulk and a lot of fiber in them also. This is why the only way you can do this is to do it in the form of simple sugars in either gels or a mix. But in order for you to get to the point where you can ingest that much carbohydrate during a race, you have to practice. You, you're, you have to become accustomed to having that in your stomach and going hard at the same time. So the way to do that is to train it during intervals, to practice during intervals, using mix during intervals. And a great way to figure out what's going on with your actual blood sugar levels is to use something like the Super Sapiens app. Now, full disclaimer, if you're in the US, you can't do this at this time, so don't get too excited. But I'm going to tell you about it anyway. The Super Sapiens app is uh, a system that uses a sensor that is a continuous blood glucose monitor. I've got one in my arm right now. It puts a tiny subdermal needle into your skin, which continually measures your blood glucose. And it is a non-medical device. It is currently being approved by the FDA or they're in the approval process by the FDA. Um, someone knows how long that'll take, but it's not me. Um, and it can be used by some people in other countries depending on where you live. But this is a powerful tool to help you figure out how your food choices impact your blood sugar. And just a brief note on that science, it used to be that people had things like glycemic index charts and they assumed that all these were one-to-one, -one, meaning the glycemic index of a cube of sugar is this and the glycemic index of a bowl of oatmeal is that. 
Now we know, of course, that the natural law of bioindividuality throws a giant wrench in all of that. Just as natural law does, it's always existed. It's just people are becoming more conscious of it, thankfully. And what's interesting is that not everyone has the same glycemic response to the same foods. That's the fascinating part. Why? Because you're an individual. Because God is a novelty generator and you have your own unique gut biome and your own critters in your digestive tract that handle different foods in different ways. Isn't that interesting? As an easy example, human beings with a lot more Asian descent in their bloodline handle rice much more differently than those who are from a Western bloodline. So if I eat a bowl of rice, I will probably have a much higher glycemic response than someone who was born in and grew up in Tokyo. Isn't that fascinating? So it makes sense if you think about it. I probably, my ancestors who were Western European, mostly German, French, and English, probably didn't have a ton of exposure to rice. So the gut biome of my ancestors probably hasn't evolved to deal with that much rice in their systems. So it makes sense that it would cause a little bit more of a glycemic spike, perhaps. So the point being is that you can use a super sapiens device, and hopefully all of you will be able to use these in the near future because I think they're a powerful tool to be able to figure out what your optimal blood sugar is for performance on the bike during hard intervals versus on a long ride versus when you're just hanging out. And this brings up a really important point, which is that hopefully all of you have been told your whole lives don't eat a lot of sugar because it's bad for you. And maybe you were told the why. And if you were told the why, you were probably told two things. One, it rots your teeth, which is probably true in most cases. And two, is that it causes an insulin response. And that insulin response is not good for you. And this is also true. So what happens is you eat a sugar pop. I don't know what that is. I don't know if that's a real thing, but we'll use it as a hypothetical example. You eat your sugar pop and it's got a high glycemic load for you. And your blood sugar goes up and up and up. It skyrockets and it gets really high. If you were wearing your super sapiens device, you would see that on the graph live. It would go shoot up near to about 200, which is the height of where the sensor measures on the super sapiens uh, measuring system on their app. That's the peak. And when that happens, your, your bloodstream is like a super highway of regulation. It's one of the the most monitored aspects of a body physiologically, meaning your body tries to keep the bloodstream is a way that your body sort of picks up on things and, and works to balance them out, right? Salt or saline levels being another example, blood pressure being another example. So hormones being another example, when all these things pass through the bloodstream, there are different receptor sites that figure out what's going on. And then other responses happen to try to keep the body in a state of homeostasis or equilibrium, balance. So when the blood sugar goes up quite high, especially if you're not being chased by a tiger, which when you just sat there and ate a sugar pop, this is normally the case, uh, then your body will respond and seek to lower the blood sugar to bring you back into a state of equilibrium. And it does this by releasing insulin, which is a chemical that brings blood sugar back down. Now, 
because you ate a sugar pop and your blood sugar went skyrocketing way super high very quickly, the insulin response is very dramatic. It's very strong. And that causes your blood sugar to plummet rather quickly. Okay, so we have a big swing. And then when your blood sugar goes back down, because the wave in both directions, the high and the low, was quite, um, was quite extreme, that in itself is not a, a state that really is healthy for the body, right? And that whiplash effect causes stress on the system. Biochemical stress, we might say. But also the problem is that then when your blood sugar drops really low because of this big hit of insulin, you feel hungry. And if you're not used to being in a low insulin state, then you're going to reach for something that will satisfy your hunger. And what is it that's commonly available in our society that satisfies hunger quickly? Sugar. So you see the problem here. This is how people get themselves in trouble from a biochemical standpoint is throughout the day, they'll have multiple swings of high and low blood sugar, up and down, up and down, up and down. And it's propagated by the easy access to very sugary foods. This is one of the biggest problems with Western society is that when we have so much sugary food available to us, it sort of begins this accordion effect up and down, up and down, up and down with the blood sugar. And this is really not healthy. Now, here's the confusing part, or well, it's really not that confusing. It's just backwards or inverted. When you are on the bike and you are riding hard, the insulin response no longer applies. That only happens, I would say, after about a half an hour of riding, and it's more applicable the harder you're going. So when you're raging four hours into a ride and you're hammering your brains out and breathing out of every cell of your body, going at the speed of light, you can throw in as much sugar as you want and your insulin will not move one bit. Why? Because your body will instantly use that as fuel. The, prioritis, the, the body will prioritize any sugar in the blood to go straight to the muscles. So there's literally no time for the insulin response to happen because it gets incinerated immediately. So the longer and harder the ride is, the more the insulin response is curbed. Now, can you go out on a zone two aerobic endurance ride and nuke yourself with sugar an hour into the ride by stopping in a coffee shop and eating something extremely sugary and then waiting 20 minutes and have problems? Yes, you can do that. That's not the best solution in the universe or the best paradigm. Better solution is to kind of keep riding and stop for loss, uh, less social component to the ride and more riding component to the ride, right? That's how I would phrase it. Keep it rolling. Uh, the longer the stop and the more sugar you eat, the more problematic um, the paradigm becomes, the more problematic things can become. So when we're on the bike and we're going hard, there really is no insulin response. And people wonder about this all the time. That's why you don't really have a, a crash from having a Coke in the end of a race or in the middle of a race even. All that happens is you just ran out of sugar. It's not that you had an insulin crash. It's that your blood sugar became low, not from an insulin response, but just because you were going hard and you ran out of fuel. That's what it was. Those are two different things. Hopefully that spectrum makes sense. Um, one other point I want to talk about is I want to touch on this idea of a formula and 90 grams of carbs per hour. We always have to interpret a formula in context, and it's so important to do this. 
Formulas can become problematic. If you follow them dogmatically, they will ultimately be a source of challenge for you, in my experience, in most cases. Because dogmatic thinking always results in a roadblock. It's, that's what happens. The problem is when people don't recognize that roadblock and they hold on to the dogma because they've been programmed to do so. So when we're talking about a formula, whether it's 60 grams of carbs an hour or two bottles an hour or 90 grams of carbs an hour or whatever, we have to interpret it based on the context of what's happening and make adjustments based off of our intuition and internal understanding of what's going on. So in order to explain this, I'll give you two quick examples. Example one, let's pretend that you've been training really hard for a long block, let's say five days in a row. And then you travel for one or two days to get to a race or to your event. And during that travel period, you really don't have the opportunity to eat very much food or very good food or both because you're traveling and the food sucks. Okay, so what's the likely outcome of this scenario is that you're going to get to your race and you're going to be starving because you've trained right up to your race. Uh, you did a five-day block. You probably finished that block a bit glycogen depleted and a bit in the hole calorically overall. And then you were unable to fuel the tank. So the morning of your race on the third day after travel, you've already, you're already racing in this hypothetical example, you might wake up and just be starving, just be ravenous. And I would say that's a day where you could probably put a lot of fuel in the tank, right? And you may need a little bit bigger breakfast than normal. You may be able to eat a little closer to the race start than normal. And you might need to eat more on the bike that day than normal. And if you pay attention to those things, then you might do fine. But if you're in the mindset of thinking formulaically or you're in a mindset of I don't want to be heavy for the climb and food makes me fat, uh, a.k.a. how did these shorts make my ass look fat? If you're worried about this or that's your mindset or focus, then you might quite easily underperform because you might be underfueled because you never really fueled the, uh, filled the fuel tank after those hard five days of training, right? <clears throat> now, example two to contrast. Let's say that you kind of had the opposite scenario happen. You had uh, three days of really atrocious weather uh, before your race. And so you didn't train much outside. You were confined to the trainer and you weren't very motivated or um, whatever the scenario was. You didn't get much done. And you also ate some pretty big meals, just circumstantially. Maybe your family cooked some big meals or you had a lot of good food in the fridge to kill or whatever. Or you were just bummed out because you couldn't ride outside, so you end up eating some more. So you're kind of borderline overfueled. And then you come to a race, right? And on the weekend, you're... You get up that morning and you know that you've got to put some food in, the, in your stomach, but you're just feeling really full and really not hungry at all. On these days, you have to be quite careful in my experience because if you force yourself to eat too much thinking, I have to be fueled, I have to be fueled, then you're going to be stuffed during the race. And this is a, a problem because the body, when you're racing hard, your body's trying to figure out where the blood needs to go. And it's dividing blood flow to the muscles and to the gut. And if there's an imbalance there, if there's too much blood going to the gut, 
then it means you can't go to the muscles and you just will not perform. It'll be like riding your bike with a governor on. You just won't go that fast. Even though you have a capacity to go at 100% in training, on that day, you won't express it and you'll only go at whatever, 88% or 91% or whatever. And even if it's 98%, that can be enough to have a really bad race because racing is by nature maximal and quite challenging. So in this scenario, we have to be quite cautious because we need to stay fueled, but we also have to listen very attentively to our bodies and to the caloric needs of what our system will use for that day. And so you might end up eating much less than you normally would for a race, or maybe only for the first part of the race. If it's a long race, maybe you don't eat anything for the first hour and you're fine. And then you begin to nibble in the second hour. And then in the third hour, you're up to your normal fueling practices that you would have um, perhaps begun in the first hour on a day where your fueling needs were a little more normalized, right? So this is a great example of how we have to change our fueling needs based on context. Other factors that can influence fueling needs um, during a race are temperature. Temperature is a huge one. On a hot day, most riders just cannot eat or drink as much. For me, I know I gave myself a lot of trouble, when I, in, especially when I was a young racer, drinking too much mix on hot days. I would get halfway through the race and I just couldn't get it down. And I felt like I was going to throw up all over my bars and my stomach was constantly bloated. Now, maybe this was the wrong mix. This was a long time ago, so I actually don't know what was in the mix. I mean, we're talking like 1994 um, or five or six. I have no idea what was in my bottles back then, um, so I can't really say. Maybe it was too much fructose, and that was part of the problem. Maybe it was something else in the drink that wasn't working for me. You know, everybody has their drinks that they like, and the ones that, that really don't like don't work for them, so you've got to figure that out on your own. Everyone is an N of one. But on hot days, I would I learned to take one bottle of water and one bottle of mix and then use as much mix as possible after that. The reverse is true on cold days in my experience. Most riders can tolerate more calories, um, a little higher concentration of solution in their bottles, and most riders need it because you're burning a few more calories to stay warm typically, on especially if you're racing in really cold conditions like in a cyclocross event or in early season road race where it's like snowing or something, right? Um, intensity obviously impacts caloric, caloric choice. If you're racing something like a hill climb, <laughs> excuse me, which you know is going to be quite intense from the gun and probably not that long, maybe a half an hour or an hour long would be typical. Uh, then you're going to want to eat your race meal, your pre-race meal further out, probably from the start. And be really cautious about when you're applying or when you're taking gels and, and gummies and, and how much mix you're applying on the bike during that event. Balancing, of course, what you have from experience during your interval sessions and what you know your body needs for competition. The more experience you have with these types of fuels during intense intervals, the, more, the easier it is to make your choices on race day because you're familiar with what your body can tolerate, right? How many grams of carbs can you get in your mouth? And for, let me reemphasize this point, for hard racing, for time trials, for hard road races, for crits, and for hill climbs, you want, basically, the limit of your gut is the determining factor, but you want to get as many grams of carbs in your mouth as possible, and that's in the form of sugar.
not bagels. The last factor I think that we really have to consider is duration of our rides. Um, that's a has a huge role in how many calories we take and what type of calories we take in. Uh, if you're going to have, if you're doing a really long event, like a, an Ironman or a road race or something to that effect, and you fill your pockets with 12 gels, no matter how much we want to intake all this sugar, that's a lot of the same thing. There is a factor which contributes to some athletes' performance in long events, which is there's like Alan Lim talks about this. He describes it as sort of gut sugar pathway fatigue, basically. If you have too much of the same exact sugar over time, the gut can become non-responsive, and that's just not productive. This is why I think a lot of riders request a Coke in the end of a race. They've been having their gels and bars and um, mixes, which are usually of one brand to that point. That would be quite typical. And then they switch to a Coke, which is just straight sugar, and it's a different type of sugar. So it's got a different flavor. It goes down quick. It's got a little zing in the carbonation, but also it's just the change in the type of sugar that then the gut becomes responsive to. It's almost like the pathways become shut down somehow to the same type of, of mix. So that's something to consider too in long events. Sometimes changing the types of sugar might have a good result for you. It may be, you know, a lot of people are convinced that Coke is some sort of magic bullet and maybe it is, but I think most of it comes down to the fact that it's just a different sugar. So I hope you find those thoughts helpful. Um, again, you've heard me bash a bit on gels and, and mix in training. And for long rides, I think there's still quite a bit to be said on that front. I prefer riders to explore other fuel sources so that they can get some macronutrients in their system and also a bit of fat to upregulate their fat metabolism. I also just prefer foods that are a little more well-rounded and a little healthier. If you're never or rarely riding really hard or you're racing, your goal is not racing, then you may never consume gels or mixes. And that's totally reasonable. Uh, that stuff is rocket fuel. And if you're not a you're not a race car driver, you're not a rocket fuel pilot, rocket pilot. Because your goals on the bike don't involve that type of performance, then you ought not to use that fuel. It doesn't really make sense. Uh, you're not going to gain anything from it, and it might cause you problems, right? So the happy medium fuels in between rocket fuel and diesel fuel are things like oatmeal bars or homemade granola or high-carbohydrate snacks that are real foods. This is the middle ground, and this is where what I train with most of the time um, on days where I do want to do intervals, or this year I may do actually some bike races, some R-A-C-E-S's, where I pin on a number. I don't know how much actual racing I'll be doing in the truest sense. That's not really in my wheelhouse anymore. I'm not out to prove anything to anyone, but I might go and have more of a speedy participation type of situation. We'll see how it develops. But the point being is I probably will use some gels in those races when it's appropriate and some mixes. Uh, because I do want to go fast at times and I may even do it in training from time to time again. But for most of my fueling, I'll be choosing something that's a little more whole food oriented. The danger zone is when riders decide that they're going to be on the hippie side and the healthy side. And obviously I have no problem with that choice. But when you're just eating fruit and nut bars and you're trying to do threshold efforts at the end of a long ride, 
you're kind of selling yourself a little bit short at that point, in my opinion. Um, you're, you're just going to be limited and how hot you can run the engine when you're working off almonds and figs. Um, that stuff is good fuel for steady low end riding or maybe even tempo work. But if you're really trying to open the throttle, you're, you're not going to be dealing with a level playing field. It's uh, it's a knife in a gunfight. So I hope all that information is helpful for you. If you have questions, um, hit me on the gram. I will be attentive to the, the DMs as best as I can. And thank you for listening. I will also publish a written version of this article. It's going to have a drawn graph with some little bits and bobs on there as far as um, the quadrants that we use for low intensity versus high intensity and long duration versus short duration and a few other bits of information. As always, thanks for listening. Uh, got some exciting interviews coming up, so please stay tuned and ride your bike fast. Gratitude. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard-fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong, but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse because if we can't have a discourse as adults then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society even if we disagree we ought to be able to in most cases shake hands and walk away because after all this is sport we're talking about and while sport is training for life it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not, to be clear, to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. 
that helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings. Blessings.